And when we take up this psalm, Psalm 84, it's a, a unique psalm in a couple of different ways. One, it is one of the psalms of Korah, of the sons of Korah, which means it's not exclusively written by David. This particular one, it's believed, is written kind of cooperatively with David and the sons of Korah, them being the final editors of, of what we receive. But more than that, this psalm is also a psalm that was common for the pilgrimages that would be engaged in by the children of Israel. It would be one of those psalms that they would learn, and it would be one of those psalms that they would sing even while they're on their journeys. I mean, some of us may be acquainted with those kinds of things. It doesn't happen in all times and in all places, but there are some people. And some families that when they get on the road and they get ready to travel, they sing. Or at least in centuries gone by that used to happen. Now everyone is so independently isolated on their unique and particular devices that they are plenty well engaged. But once upon a time, there was little to do when you were journeying by car. And you're going from city to city, radio stations change, and soon you don't know where to find what makes sense and what works and so the easiest way to pass the time would be to sing songs this is also in the days way prior to any form of smartphones and any forms of radio and modern entertainment and this this would have been one of those psalms that those who were pilgrims would learn and sing in route now it says this in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, just to paint an introductory picture. Three times a year, your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All right, so this was that introduction. So at least three times a year, Wherever the people lived, at least the men, and oftentimes they would bring families along. Some of us will be acquainted with the occasions where God would choose a particular place, and Elkanah would bring with him his wife Hannah, and, and, and family members would join in on some of these pilgrimages. But it was required that at least the males be there three times a year. And so they made this journey with some degree of regular frequency, and this would have been one of those songs. And the idea of the children of Israel in the wilderness and passing through, and the idea even for all the children of Israel to continue to have these pilgrimages, like David would say, I am a pilgrim as were all of my fathers before me. It just ingrained in them that sense that everything is transitory and, and we are passing through the part of the idea even of the feasts of booths where or where they would live in tents was just to remind them this isn't it this isn't what it's all about these houses these homes these uh, uh, towns cities metropolises seasides whatever it is all of the, the things that are around, we're passing through. These aren't what we cling on to. And that idea of being pilgrims in the New Testament reminds us that we also, as children of God, 
are pilgrims and exiles in this present world. This is not our final destination. And there is nothing here worth doing or clinging on to that compares to what God has prepared for those who love him. Nothing. And so that perspective of a pilgrim, I want us to consider that idea today as we unfold this passage to some extent. The first thing that I want us to see in this passage, and you can look there with me, is something of the pilgrim's pa passion. It tells us this in verse 1. How lovely. Now, some older translations there say, how amiable. Which is not strong enough. <laughs> you know, usually we'll say that to some, uh, somebody's amiable who's reasonably friendly. That doesn't carry the weight. How lovely itself isn't even as strong ultimately as the word here is in the Hebrew. It carries a stronger sense. How absolutely beloved. How, how love worthy. As opposed to just how lovely. Because I mean we could say lovely and actually we don't. I mean the, the British use the term lovely far more frequently than we Americans do. Um, we, don't, we don't generally say oh that's a lovely dress and that's a lovely flower and we, we don't generally use that as an adjective so often here. And if we do, it's, it's, it's just generally a, a reasonably soft compliment. This isn't meant as a soft compliment. This is, this is, the adjective is, I love this. Everybody should love this. This is what we should love. It is so love worthy. What is it that is love worthy? Your dwelling place. Now, I guess before I go further, I better, I better just lay this simple idea out. At the time that these were being written, David and the sons of Korah, we don't have fancy, beautiful tabernacle and temple. You know what we've got? A tent. I mean, it's covered in animal skins. I mean, it's not something that generally that you would see it far off and say, oh, wow. Even it was when David himself had constructed his nice home, a home made of cedar, he looked at his house, and then he looked at the tabernacle and thought, oh, boy, I think I need to make a temple for the Lord. I'm dwelling in this house of cedar, fine woods, quality materials, excellence and beauty, and... That's not very impressive. Well, here it's saying how love worthy is your dwelling place. And it's not a reference to the architecture. It's not a, rec a, a reference to the building construction materials. It's not a reference to the aesthetic. The things that we would see and say, oh. It's not that you see it and you're overwhelmed, like maybe seeing the Taj Mahal or seeing one of the great seven wonders of the world or seeing the pyramids. It's not that kind of a thing that, that it's just the item or the building. The focus that we're, we see in this is the reason why that place was so love-worthy is because God was pleased to set his presence there. 
It represented the place where people could meet him and he would meet with them. It represented that place where they had a form of access, where they could come and offer sacrifices, where they could receive in a sense and recognize their acceptance, the covering that's for their sin. It symbolized so much. And so it's not just the place, but what it represented. And really the fact that it was your dwelling place. The fact that it was where God had chosen to set his name. That was what it said in Deuteronomy 16, 16. And at times, he chose to move it from place to place. At a time, it was at Shiloh. At a time, it was at Gilgal. Then it was in Jerusalem. And there it was established with a greater degree of permanence and would take on greater symbolic significance. But I want us to see this. This, this um, sense that it is love worthy. It is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Most of our um, translations there, O Lord of hosts, will have an exclamation point behind it because that's the exclaimed emphasis. He is there. The Lord of hosts is there. And even when it, when, it, when it gives that big, broad, descriptive name of God, the Lord of hosts, it's wanting us to just get a sense of his power and his bigness and his broadness. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the master of heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And yet, we get to come and meet him. We get to come to the place that he meets with us. That bore remarkable significance to them, to the pilgrim who was coming. And we even see in the, in the way that this um, unfolds, he says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Now, now that's, that's interesting because, again, I'm noting this. Were the courts somehow just really comfortable was it I can't wait to get there I mean the seats are so nice and I will have been be so tired from walking you know recliners no no the idea is there was nothing about the courts in terms of how they looked but that simple notion my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. I'm just wanting you to see this. Your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Um, the courts of my Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to what? To the living God. So the, the praise that's overflowing from him is to who? God. So everything about the courts, everything about the place, everything about the gathering, everything about the journey is God. God is there. I'm going to that place. I'm meeting with him. I'm gathering with his people. We are joining together. Even it's, it's, it's beautiful the way that it expresses it here. He says, not his soul longs for it. It's not the idea of uh, getting there and then the soul is like, I'm just, I'm tired now. I'm, I'm ready to go now. It's plenty. No, the idea is, ah, this is home. This is where I belong. God is here to be worshipped, to be drawn near. And the phrasing even goes on like this. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The, the, play, the, the way that that uh, plays out, even the sing for joy, 
really more literally is shouts for joy. My heart and flesh, inside and out. I am absolutely wholesale, totally given to my God in worship. We need grace and help to do that. Because things happen. I mean, I've heard of occasions where in a church service, before the word was even preached, electricity went out and songs were started in the wrong key. You know, and, and then singing was done without slides to sing to. And those kind of things can potentially be distracting if that's all you're there for. But all those things, it's like, eh. All right, we lost the slides. All right, the electricity went out. All right, that was off key. And even if the song was on key, maybe the singer was off. Who cares? Those things don't grip us. I mean, when, when all flows nicely, praise God for that. When it doesn't, we are not ruined. Why? Because we've come to sing his praises. There's a multitude of things that can happen in these moments to distract us. There's a multitude of things that can happen in the preceding week that could distract us. There could be things that could be in, in, in our lives and that are going on in our homes that could be just crushing and devastating. And yet, we can, by the grace of God come here and our eyes are not on that and our eyes are not on them our eyes are on him and when our eyes are on him when our eyes are on him there is hope when our eyes are on him there is strength from my own experience Growing up and talking with many, it seems that in so many families, Sunday mornings are the best mornings to fight. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're the most frequent mornings that, that people are running behind, <laughs> and they're, they're the particular mornings that people's interaction regarding running behind and regarding everything just, it just all seems more edgy. And so it's just easy to come messed up, <laughs> just, just distracted, frustrated, and disturbed. What I, the psalmist here helps me and hopefully helps us to say, but as we come, we're not thinking about where we're coming from. We're thinking about where we're going. <laughs> and not just where we're going, but who we're coming to. Who we're drawing near to. What he's all about. What he's worthy of. His beauty, his power, his riches, his grace. He's so caught up. The passion of the pilgrim is so much that he, he, he describes it here as even a longing for the benefit of the birds. What do I mean by that? He, he's thinking about this tent that is the dwelling place of God. And he says, he's, as he's reflecting on it, he's like, Birds get to fly in there and make their nest near the temple. Right in the temple. And they get to be there all the time. I kind of wish I was a bird. I kind of wish. Because 
there, there is that sense in which as you are so caught up and as your whole heart and soul are, are focused on him, that everything falls away. And those 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 things that you can't that you can't escape from those things that you can't control those things that would uh, to some in some sense destroy you as you are caught up on him as you are near to him nothing has its power over you. I mean, the pilgrim would would have this notion that when I go back again in life, it's it's back to the daily grind, the responsibilities, the duties, the demands, the stress. But but when I'm there during the pilgrimage, it's all wholesale him. Wouldn't it be great if if every day that's where I was? These birds, they get to go in there. And he uses these birds. The first one, when he says bird, is is like just a simple tweeting finch. And then the second one, it says sparrow or swallow. These, These were like the most ordinary, the most common, the most inexpensive birds. These aren't birds that bird watchers are going to be like, oh, nice. They're not the kind of things that, that, oh, that's the most beautiful bird song ever. No, these are just the the far more ordinary birds, a dime a dozen, all over the place. There's nothing significant about the bird, nothing valuable about the bird. But he looks at that bird and says, man, I wish I was that bird. Why? Not because he can fly. Hold yourself. Not because he can fly. Why does he want to be that bird? Because that bird gets to make a nest right there in the temple of God. Not only does he long for the life of the birds, he says it there as we move in uh, through verse 3. Uh, and, and that's where she gets to have her, her lay the eggs and all of that. He says this, verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house and ever sing your praises. They're saying, wow, longing for the life of the Levites. Wow. I mean. I wish I was like the birds and I could be there. I wish I was like the Levites and never had to leave. That this is where I always was. You know. Which is probably and potentially different than some. They come to church like, I can't wait to get out of here. I hope nobody talks to me. No. (laughs) That ought not be our, our spirit. By the grace of God, we come to draw near to God. And there is something about coming together in the communion of the saints with united voice and united heart, with like love that brings a richness. And that was part of these pilgrimages. Oftentimes, remember, a lot of these pilgrimages, it wasn't just one isolated group. As they went, the groups would be larger and larger and subgroups joined together, singing together on the journey to reach that destination. I want to move on to the second thought. The second thought in this uh, passage I would, from the pilgrim's passion, want to look at the pilgrim's power. Says this, blessed, verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. Such an interesting phrase there. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Now, where does that mean the strength is not? 
in myself. Even more than that, the strength is not even in numbers. Okay? There are, there are some who think that, oh, you know what, if, when I went to that occasion, maybe that conference or that thing, there were thousands of people, and, and with the thousands of people there singing, I just felt this great spiritual strength. Well, as encouraging and refreshing as the saints and the communion of the saints can be, our strength is in who? The Lord. That one of the strong emphasis in the scripture is it's not absolutely and totally the number. For a, a group of Jews, I mean, you've heard it before, oftentimes you would have to have at least 10 men representing 10 families in order to form a synagogue in a given city. Okay? So 10 men. And into that kind of a situation, then you would have a synagogue, and in that synagogue, you would have the, the rules of the synagogue, and then you would have somebody violate the rules of the synagogue, and then you would have to have witnesses come against them and put them out of the synagogue or bring them in. Well, the New Testament removes those things, and it says where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. But what used to seem to have to be 10 and or more and or more, it's not in the numbers. It's in the grace of God. It's in the power of God. And so the power of God is manifest in the small group. The standards of God, the righteous judgments of God are manifest in the small group as well as the big group. Is it not? Ought to be. And so what we see is this, that their strength is in you. And it says, in whose heart is the way. What's interesting is this, Psalm 28 verse 8 says this, the Lord is the strength of his people. So, and now this is uh, so helpful as well, because along the way, depending on where you're coming from, you can get weary. You can, get, you can struggle in the journey. On these kinds of journeys, remember, you, you pack up your things. There can be lengthy stretches between one town and another town. There can be places where you're going a long way and there's not a lot of tree shade. A long way and there's not a lot of water or juice stands. Right? A long way and you can get weary and you can be flagging. And you can be struggling. And he reminds that even in that, blessed is that God is the source of our strength. And not only the source of our strength, with it begins with him, it's rooted in him. But verse 7 says this, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears. So we, we have that, that reality. Um, this temptation... I can't overcome it. And stop trying to overcome it with your own strength. You need to find your strength in God. You need to come to Him and appeal to Him and plead to Him. Because when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. When God is your strength, you are an overcomer. You are more than a conqueror. So if you are unable to conquer, then you are not recognizing and or walking in the source of true strength. The source of true overcoming strength. For 
I might say, for temptation to sin, for uh, depression and, and heartbreak, for everything that we might face on this world that would wage war against us, God is our strength. And we go in Him, we go from strength to strength. His grace continues to abound within us to make us more than conquerors. So I love that because we do face, and, and I've met dear brothers and sisters and spoken with them, and they've oft said things like this, I can't do it. And, and this happens even with many of these groups in these houses where they're with addictions and these different things. I just can't do it. I just can't stop it. I just can't overcome it. And I do not disagree. You can't. But who has enough strength? Who has more than enough strength at all times for everything? If he were to give you but a little strength. Do you think you could make it? Yes. But what if then the attack and the struggle and the desire increases? When God has given you a little strength, do you think he's exhausted his supplies? Praise God, no. We go from strength to strength so that whatever comes our way, Paul learned what it was like to be in want, what it was like to have plenty so that he could say I've learned in all circumstances whether it's infirmity health plenty want whether it's good times or bad I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me now I know as much as you do that verse is tragically too oft used by Christian schools regarding athletics you know we're going to play the game tonight. And you know what? We're going to win. We're going to become the champions. You know why? Because we can do all... Yeah, that's, it's not a reference to that as you're playing another Christian school who's chanting the same verse. All right, that's not necessarily a healthy way to approach it. It's not talking about sporting events. It's, it's not it is talking about whatever circumstances come against us, whatever temptation, whatever the world throws at me, I can endure it. I can overcome. I can wage the war against it and walk forward victorious. Why? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He is my strength. And by his grace, I go from strength. But I'm using all of my strength and things just got worse. He's got more. But what if things get even worse? He's got even more. But what if things get harder? What if things get to the degree that no one has ever faced before? Yeah, there is no possibility of exhausting the power of God. Isn't that comforting? Oh, my. And we move on from uh, there. It also says this. 
And I'm st- uh, I just want to stir us just one more thought from verse 5. It says, in whose heart, the ESV says, in whose heart are the way to Zion. And then you'll have a little footnote there that will say something like this. Hebrew lacks to Zion. Which makes me say, shame on you for adding a word that's not there in the original. Now, they're, so they are already adding ideas and explaining. In, it simply says, in whose heart is the way. That's interesting, isn't it? A simple idea. Which really, the King James says, um, in whose heart are the ways of them. And the of them is not in the original either, so shame on them. Uh, some of the, uh, the, the newer translations simply say, whose hearts are set on the pilgrimage. Because they don't know what to say. But this is not, um, not an indiscriminate idea. The idea here is this. It is for those whose hearts are committed to this pilgrimage, that are committed to this way, that are committed to this journey, that are committed to this God. In other words, somebody wants to think this. I'm not, I'm not getting strength. If God will give me strength, then here's what I'll do. I will respond with commitment. Is that the, nat- the natural po- uh, process men like to do? If God will give me strength, then following him giving me that, I will give him commitment. What is this saying? No. It's those in whose heart is the way. It's those who by grace their hearts are given to him. It's those whose, who, whose hearts are committed to him. It's those whose hearts are drawing them, leading them to the presence of God. It's them who find strength. You don't barter for strength. It's when you are wholly given to God, you find that you are the one who has strength. The, the blessedness of this. Uh, Rarely do I do this, but I'm just going to read this little comment by Spurgeon on this section. He says this. He is not, however, indiscriminate in his eulogy, but speaks of those who heartily attend to the sacred festivals. The blessedness of sacred worship belong not to the half-hearted, listless worshipers, but to those who throw all their energies into it. Neither prayer nor praise nor hearing of the word will be pleasant or profitable to persons who have left their hearts behind them. A company of pilgrims who have left their hearts at home would be no better than a caravan of carcasses. Quite unfit to blend with the living saints in adoring the living God. I thought he, he just had such a poignant way of saying that. That it, it isn't to be listless. I mean, how could we give anything but our whole heart if we really understand who he is? I mean, if we understand who God is, we understand who Christ is. I mean, these, these are the most sure and foundational realities of the entire universe. I mean, more, uh, more factual and foundational than any of the laws that, of nature or gravity that men have ascertained by observation. The foundation of everything is there is a God. 
and he created the heavens and the earth. All men are accountable to him. He sent his son to seek and save the lost. There is salvation in no other name. Every moment of this life and everyone's life will be called into account before the judgment of God. God is all that ever matters in anything. And we put so much value in so many other things and give so much energy and effort to nothing. And sometimes not only to nothing, but to things that are distracting. To things that are, it, there is, there's a sense in which the scripture speaks of disobedience and sinful practices. So often in the Old Testament, it speaks of it as a rebellion against and a despising of God. And I know there's a lot of believers who, or professing believers and churchgoers who would never turn and, say, and raise their fist to God and say, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you want. You don't matter to me. They're not going to do that. But what we don't get is when we do those things that are displeasing in his sight, it is despising of him. We think that we're just doing it over here for ourselves, and it's not affecting anybody. Not realizing, no, no, no. You're despising him. That's not right. That's not healthy. In whose heart is the way. There is no strength. There is no hope. There is no life if your heart is not in the way. And someone says, then how can I fix my heart? Can a man fix his own heart? He cannot. God must by his grace circumcise the heart. We must fall on our knees to cry out to him and say, Oh God, save my soul. Oh God, take me and make me new. God, take me and change me. I cannot do it on my own. And I've proven all that I am. Comes against you. Here is that. Here is that. It's just such a, a stark difference that, that he's in this picture he's painting here. In Zechariah 10, 11, he says these words. I, the Lord says, I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name. If you want to walk in the name of the Lord, in the way of the Lord, the strength is not in you and it's not in me. Where does that strength come from? God himself, and that's who we look to. I um, want to move on, if I would, quickly here. It, it goes on in this passage, and it says this in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca. Now, they make it a place of springs. Part of the challenge with this, there is no place that was called the valley of Baca. The word here that is baka is uh, some. It is simply a word that means this: weeping and tears. And so, th this is important to note. This the children of God, who, who whose hearts are given to Him, who are drawing near to Him, 
they still will find themselves at times where? In the valley of Baca. In according, if you were to translate this in the way that it's been translated by say the Septuagint and others, in the valley of tears. In the veil of tears. And, and, and the scriptures are able to paint for us just an amazing picture. Is in the veil of tears. The place of this desperation. And this, this, this pain. And this uh, tragedy. It says, as they go, they make it a place of springs. So one is, a place of springs is the place people want to go. A place where people are refreshed and comforted. And so how is it? And it, it, it seems like a logical incompatibility. How can someone be in a place where there is um, such hurt and such uh, tears and such difficulty. And at the same time have a peace that passes understanding. And a joy in the Lord. The world thinks those things are incompatible. But we can mourn and we can weep and we can well, wail and we can feel loss and we can feel hurt and we can feel distress and we can feel agony and we can still say it is well because my God is in control. Because my God is sovereign. Because my God is worthy of worship. My God is worthy of love. My God, his eye is upon me. His purposes are being fulfilled. And so this, though this brings me to tears, there is yet in the tears a peace and joy in God. The world doesn't have that. It just goes from grief to grief and misery to misery and, and, and agony and depression. And, uh, but there is hope in the Lord. Lastly, I'm going to draw our attention to these, this thought. Um, look at the pilgrim's priority with me. I'm going to jump down to verse 10 as our time is short. It says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now that simple picture there. Um, you see the priority. I would, I would rather have one day in the presence of God honoring him than a thousand anywhere else. No matter where it is. Think of the most beautiful, the most picturesque, the most glorious places that men can conceive of. No, nearness to God is far more glorious. And not only in terms of uh, duration, but location. Remember, this is written by the sons of Korah. The Korah had rebelled and really did not feel like it was enough for him and his brothers and, uh, to, to be Levites and doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. He felt like he and his and, and others, like Aaron, had a right to be priests. Why should we be just people who open and close doors? People who, who make sure. Why should we be just guards and, and watchmen and janitors instead of the kings and the priests? Why can't we have that? 
And as a result of that pride and that demand, we've seen number 16 says, God opened up the earth and swallowed Korah, Dothan, Abiram, on. And all of those people who followed with him. Fire from the Lord came out and killed 250 people who presumed to take on what was permissible only for the priests. And now the sons of Korah, you know what they say? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Now the nice thing about that, the thing about that is, it's not even, he's not even saying, I need the most privileged position. I need the greatest blessings. I, no, I'm, I'm the humble proximity. <laughs> To the power and presence of God is enough. And I would prefer that. Than what? To dwell in the tents of wickedness. You, rather than by tents. It is really the word for home. The same word that's translated tents of the wicked. Is the same word used to, to translate David's palace. Okay. So it's like well who would want to dwell in a wicked man's tent. He lives in a tent. No that's not. The idea is it, it, his home. I don't. These wicked people who are doing all of the things that, that appeal to their flesh, all of the things that satisfy their pleasure, whatever they want, they, are, they don't restrain themselves from. But you know what? I'd rather have one day, and I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, which has a, a limit to what he can do, and a limit to where he can go. But he's not worried about what he gets to do and where he gets to go and where others get to go. He's, I'm near to my God. I'm near to my God. I'm in the service of my God. That's all that matters. I, I, you could say, but what about this guy? What if you could go and live with them and just follow your heart's content? All of the pleasures that the world can pour out. To, to numb you, to distract you, to give you that sense. And the, the person whose heart is on the way, whose strength is in the Lord, whose pilgrimage and passion is God. You know what he says? <clears throat> I'd rather have limited bounds, limited privileges, than have absolutely abandoned wantonness. Because this is better. This is more glorious. Now that priority, that's not a priority that comes naturally. That's a priority that God alone works in the hearts of his people. And so he, he, he would stand there, the, the, stand at the threshold of God in just a menial duty to God. A limited proximity. And in all of that, going to end with these, this simple review. I guess there's so much in this chapter that we've not been able to and surely not been able to do it justice. But I want to just draw our attention in closing to three thoughts. Because in this chapter there are three blesseds. And one is in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. It is so blessed to draw near to God. To come together and seek him, worship him and sing his praises. Verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart is the way. Blessed are those who know God with a new heart and find their strength in him. And verse 12 ends, blessed is the one who trusts in 
you. Whatever comes and whatever happens. So the blessedness of the pilgrimage, the blessedness of all of this ends up being what? God is what brings his people together in communion. God is what moves the hearts of his people. God is the source of strength of his people. God is the grounds of the singing and praise of his people. God is our all in all. And the way that this is painted out, painted out so often in the scriptures is, don't pretend there's a middle ground. Either God is your all in all, or something else is. If you are not all in for God, you're not in. God doesn't save your foot or your arm. He saves you. He saves the entire man. And that is inside and out. May we know that grace. May we rejoice in that grace. And may we draw near to our God in praise.